This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there too. Welcome to HITS Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today I have another one of our HITS instructors with us. I have Gene Ramirez from California. Um, most people that have been in this industry for a while certainly have heard of uh, Mr. Ramirez. I'm happy to have him today. I know he's a real busy uh, person. So, Gene, thanks for jumping on. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jeff. I'm excited to be uh, part of this program. Yeah, I appreciate it. As I mentioned, I think most people know who you are, but um, for, for those maybe who, who aren't familiar with you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and kind of what you do? I know I know you have a, a well-developed niche. Well, I've been doing this for a long time. I uh, became a reserve police officer in the city of Whittier, which is a suburb of uh, Los Angeles, in 1981. I did that to about 1985. I was in law school at the time, so I came to a crossroad in my life where I decided Am I going to become a full-time regular police officer or am I going to just stop doing that and go straight to law school and get through that? And uh, my fiance at the time, now my wife, successfully persuaded me to stop working as a reserve and uh, go to law school full-time, which I ended up doing. And then when I graduated in uh, 1987, I started working for the L.A. County District Attorney's Office as a deputy district attorney. And I did that for a few years, prosecuting uh, misdemeanors and felony cases. And then when my twins were born in 1989, my wife and I had a talk, and she suggested that maybe I look for a position that paid a bit more in yeah. the DA's office. So uh, being the smart man I am, I said, I agree with you. And I started looking, and I found a firm that represented law enforcement. Uh, I had written a law review article while I was in law school about the defense of police officers. So it was always something on my mind. They were hiring. I interviewed. They hired me uh, on the spot. Uh, I had a couple more trials to finish with the DA's office, so it took me a few months before I was able to start with that firm. And the very first case I received with that firm was a canine case with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department canine services detail. And it's that case that got me started in the world of canine litigation. And then because of all the lawsuits we had back in the early 90s, uh, I started representing other agencies. And because we were pretty successful in the defense of our canine unit, I started uh, representing our special weapons team side because they started experiencing litigation. Sure. So that's how I got involved in the tactical world. And then in 1994, I broke off with four of my partners from that firm, and we formed our own firm where I am now. And uh, we have about 200 attorneys in uh, seven offices in four states. I head up what's called our governmental entity team, and primarily we have 10 attorneys on our team. We represent law enforcement full-time, all the time, and I tend to do a lot of the canine cases, SWAT cases, and officer-involved shooting cases. So that's kind of in a nutshell how I ended up where I am today. Sure, and I, I just want to touch on one thing. You mentioned um, when you started in the canine stuff in the early 90s, can you kind of Explain that, you know, I, I'm familiar with it, but some of my listeners, I'm sure, aren't familiar with uh, how prevalent the lawsuits against dog handlers were at that time in, in the L.A. area. As I understand, there was there was commercials on TV, wasn't there, for if you've been bit by a police dog, call me. 
Yes, there was an organization called Police Watch that was actively seeking those who uh, claimed to have been uh, abused by police officers and their police dogs. So that first case started me, and within months, I had more cases coming in. And so I was doing work for the LA County Sheriff's Department canine unit. And at one point, I think we had as many as 50 lawsuits just against our canine unit alone. So put aside all the sure. other cases we were handling for Sheriff Department. That was just canine. And then I picked up a canine handler from LAPD on a conflict. So I became involved with LAPD's litigation. At one point, they had over 100 cases against LAPD. And plus, all the other smaller agencies started uh, receiving their lawsuits. So we had some concerted law firms representing those to have claimed to have been abused by law enforcement leading this charge we were spending that's all i was doing was full-time sure. canine litigation for years and i know for a period of time la county had their own in-house attorneys county council but they were also using the services of about four outside law firms to help defend all the canine litigation eventually i became the primary firm but that is the amount of litigation that was happening. And we were starting to go to trial. I've probably tried uh, well over a dozen canine cases. Uh, we were very successful, but we were also part of a couple class actions, one against the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department in the early 90s that we were able to beat back. But I also assisted LAPD in their class action against their canine unit, where I think there were over 100 plaintiffs. And that one was ultimately settled. Uh, the city council kind of disregarded the advice given by the city attorney's office and who we were working in conjunction with, and they decided to settle it. And uh, they agreed to a, a variety of reforms that are still in effect. Sheriff's Department, because we did not have to succumb to a class action certification or settlement, have continued deploying the way they deployed. Uh -huh. And I'm sure we'll get into these various deployment policies as we go forward. But for probably about 10 years, canine litigation in Los Angeles Everybody was looking at us to learn what was happening, who were the experts against us, because they're all former yeah. law enforcement officers. And in fact, my first canine case that I mentioned earlier, that canine handler yeah. has now gone and testified against law enforcement. Um, so it's kind of gone yeah, full circle. Amazing. amazing. What do you think, um, not to get too far down this rabbit hole, this, but what do you think changes the tide there where it, it because uh, I don't think they're quite as um, involved in nearly the number of lawsuits now. I think a variety of things. One, we were successful in convincing juries that our dogs were a reasonable use of force. Number two, that we gave substantial amount of announcements prior to deploying our dogs so that the suspect had every opportunity to deploy. And also because of our bite investigation that we instituted during all this litigation with the Sheriff's Department, we started having our supervisors and deputies scouring the neighborhoods for people who heard all our canine announcements. Uh -huh. We then brought them in as witnesses. So jurors would have to listen to this innocent third party who had yeah. no relationship to us saying, I heard these announcements for 20 minutes. Why did the guy surrender? Yeah. So I think they realized we did everything. Now we have learned a lot because of those lawsuits. So one, um, I think our policies and procedures are much tighter than they ever were before. Two, the issue of announcements is paramount in a canine operation. We have got to give as many announcements as possible. We also do them in other languages if possible. Uh -huh. uh, our report writing increased. Our supervision increased. The quality of our dogs, our handler, and our supervisors also increased. Uh, 
all of that played a part in reducing our exposure litigation. And I think what we learned, we certainly shared with canine units around the country because I would always get phone calls from other agencies and their attorneys saying, hey, Gene, we have this case. What can you do? And here's the expert. Oh, I got lots of stuff on it. Let me ship it to you. So we worked with other agencies and their attorneys around this country because we realized we were all vulnerable and I didn't want anybody to have to go through what we went through here in Los Angeles. Yeah, I know. When I was a new dog handler, I know, uh, you know, it was pretty regularly on a training day that we'd talk about stuff that was going on in Los Angeles and figure out what we needed to adapt ourselves just because we figure a lot of things that start over there end up in our city. So it was... Absolutely true. And I think uh, a lot of things, for whatever reason, the litigation starts on the West Coast, it starts spreading through the Midwest and ends up on the East Coast. And that's unfortunate, but I think... uh, those in the Midwest and on the East Coast have hopefully benefited from learning from our yeah, mistakes and hopefully aren't replicating those mistakes. Absolutely, we should. We have we have we have advanced warning usually from you guys. So <laughs> exactly. So hopefully you 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 heed those warnings. So there's one positive thing about California so far. <laughs> we'll, <laughs> I know that's about it. <laughs> After that, I don't know. But <laughs> exactly. So that's a that's a great introduction about your background, even though we kind of got on a tangent about that. I think uh, our listeners now understand that you're deeply involved in not just defending cops, but you're in our profession. You you know you know all about defending dog handlers. And and in our, our uh, HIT seminar, you're going to do a course on uh, protecting against liability. And when you and I were talking about doing this show, I said, you know, we try to keep these around 20 minutes. So I, I asked you just to, you know, we come up with just a couple of, of big ones to hit. And then um, if it works well and, and you have the time, maybe we'll delve deeper into very specific topics and further shows. But uh, that being said, if, if, uh, if you had, you know, uh, 15 minutes to, to talk to somebody, you know, in, in this profession, what would be a couple of the highlights that you'd say, you know, for, for the climate we're in right now that, that they should be aware of? Number one, I would say, and again, this is no particular order. It's just what kind of comes to my mind is number one is the issue of symbolism. And it's one of the things that I will certainly be addressing in my class at the HITS uh, Hits conference in Chicago. And I'm looking forward to it. Law enforcement, like the military, it's a tight knit group of individuals who are dedicated to a common cause. You know, they want to fight crime. They want to do the right thing. They want to help people. And I don't think juries... And the general public understand the esprit de corps that goes along with our military handlers and law enforcement handlers in particular. And I want to encourage them to be strong units and to support each other. But we also need to be careful of the following things. Number one, tattoos. That has just been a huge issue for us out here in Southern California. Numerous newspaper articles and local TV station expose on a variety of our larger agencies and the issue of tattoos amongst our officers has become a huge problem for us. And the attorneys who sue law enforcement now know to ask, what tattoos do you have on you? And if it's a tattoo that glorifies sexism, racism, or the use of deadly force, that's gonna create a problem not only for the handler, but also for that handler's employing agency. I don't want anybody to have to go through this. Uh, Obviously, we're seeing a lot more tattoos than we ever have in previous generations. And I personally, I'm not a tattoo guy, but everybody has a First Amendment right to display whatever they want on their body, and I respect that. My only caveat is be careful what you put on your body because if the public sees it, for example, on your arms or some other place, a judge may order you 
to have to show to the jurors. And if it's one of those three categories I mentioned earlier, sexism, racism, or glorifying use of daily force, that can be a problem and a turnoff to the jurors. So I tell people, I will object at a deposition, which is a civil proceeding during the civil lawsuit, where they're going to ask you a variety of questions on the penalty of perjury. And I will tell them, if you have tattoos, I will object. I will instruct you not to answer. The opposing attorney will say, that's fine, but I'm going to seek a judicial order that the court order you to show that tattoo. Fine, let's argue it in front of the court. Some judges may order it, some may not, depending on what the tattoo is. But as long as you can defend it and you're not afraid to show your family that tattoo in open court, then by all means, let's go for it. But if it's something that you would not want your kids to see on 6 o'clock news, then you may want to think twice about whether you sure. want to maintain that tattoo. And that could, uh, just to be clear, that we're not talking about a tattoo that might be on your forearm. I might get a tattoo, say, on my, you know, my chest or my shoulder that's not visible when I have my uniform on, and that could still be discoverable in some form or fashion as well, right? Absolutely, depending upon what it is. Yes, and I've had those situations develop where I've had some of my clients have to go through that painful procedure of having tattoos removed because they realize. I was stupid when I did it. I now realize the potential consequence. I got to make sure that I don't run afoul of, of the laws and that I embarrass myself, my family, and my department. So some of them have actually gone through that painful procedure and have come back and have told me, it's gone, Gene. Yeah. I'll never <laughs> do it again. But likewise, I have others who say, well, I'm going to take my chance, yeah. Gene. All right. We'll take our chance and see what yeah. happens. Likewise, the other issue is morale patches. Um, Similarly, I don't want uh, any of my handlers to have a morale patch that would symbolize racism, sexism, or use of deadly force in any way that would cause discredit to themselves and to their unit and to their department. So I'm always taking a look what type of morale patches are allowed. Are my supervisors doing their job of inspecting my handlers and their dogs and their kit to make sure that there's nothing inappropriate there? I've seen a few things out there that I've – Cause me to question these sure. handlers. Excuse me, why do you have that morale patch on your dog that has that depiction? And for example, uh, I ran into a, a tactical officer some period of time ago who had a, a morale patch on their uh, entry vest that had the uh, symbol of the uh, Punisher in the middle. And at the top it said, uh, God will judge you. And the bottom it says, I will arrange the meeting. <laughs> And I, I asked him, I said, what if you were involved yeah. in a shooting? They're going to photograph what you're wearing that night, and that patch is going to appear. They're going to use that against yeah. you to try to establish that you were out there trying to injure someone or cause their death. You do not want to go through that experience. So, again, that operator should have known better, but also that supervisor of that unit should have been looking at this to make sure that there was nothing inappropriate on the uniform. Yeah, I believe I saw I, I saw a news story about, I think it was in Florida, wasn't it, where a SWAT officer had something on that and made the media. It was like a, a symbol for something. I think it was a symbol for, a, a, they said of an organization or something. I can't remember what it was, but it was a media story saying that you know they had pictures of him standing there with his kid on. And it was just a small little patch, but it turned out to be a pretty big story. Absolutely. In fact, there was something out of Mesa, Arizona recently where there was a high-profile shooting that went nationwide, and when they inspected the officer's AR-15 rifle that he used in the shooting, there was an inappropriate saying on his dust cover of his carbine, and that came out, and uh, they used it to establish his state of mind or tried to use it to establish his state of mind. He was acquitted of, uh, I think, second-degree murder. 
but certainly was terminated from his position and the attorneys that were suing him civilly were going to try to establish punitive damages against him for having that. So again, everybody should be inspecting all their equipment, including their rifles, that they don't have anything inappropriate on the receiver, the stock, or in this case, the desk cover. Sure. Very good advice. And then uh, the other issue, when I first started doing this back in, God, 19, uh, 1990 is when I started. March 12, 1990 was my first day working for a private law firm, and that's when I got my first canine case. And one of the things I learned, because I've traveled around the country, I know I'm general counsel for the United States Police Canine Association, so I've been visiting canine units around the country since 1990. And back then, some of the handlers had what we called the old-time bite books. Uh, this is my dog's first bite, Gene. You, know, you can see he was tentative and didn't puncture the skin. And here's a progression of my bite and hold training. And wow, my dog has done so well. Now look at his last bite. And I'm like, whoa, time out. You should not be maintaining these bite books. And, it, you know, technology has changed. We've become more sophisticated, allegedly. But uh, I still think handlers are taking pictures of their bites and they're keeping them on their cell phones. And they may be sharing them with their training uh mates yeah. from a uh, canine training or others. And I don't want anybody to get caught having these pictures that should remain within the evidence files of their department because obviously they would be used against them. And I just don't want to see any handlers have to get, uh, get go through a yeah. lawsuit and have to show what's on their, on their phone. Yeah. So if in that case, if uh, for some reason they, they knew I had taken a, a picture of a bite or some sort of my own personal phone, that's going to cause a whole mess, right? They're going to be able to get to my entire phone. And and we don't want to open up that avenue yeah. to the opposing counts because everybody realizes, you know, with our smartphones, oh, we can document things. We can take our own photos. We take our own videos. And I know a lot of our handlers have work phones and they have personal phones. Do not ever, ever use your personal phone for anything in work because that just opens the door for the other side to get into Maybe some of your personal things that we don't want them to yeah. see and that you certainly would not want them to see. So let's not open that door for them. And then when you do use your department-issued phone, it is only for official purposes. And if we take photos, fine, but let's show that we also enter them properly into your evidence uh, room and properly document it and that we're not maintaining them on our phone so we can show our friends and uh, and fellow uh, patrol handlers or patrol officers we don't want to do that either and how about uh, with the body worn camera i know that there's a an easy trail to see who's accessed you know any video for body worn camera has that turned into an issue yet not so much um although generally speaking the use of body worn cameras is still relatively new and we're just starting to see cases come forward where it's been used uh i was just watching a tv i think yesterday the day before and i'm watching a deployment of a dog uh at a fraternal order or police uh building that someone broke into which was not the smartest yeah. thing to do and so there were several officers that have responded immediately and uh, it was on body worn camera and i was very impressed with the handler i can't remember if it was a uh, north dakota or alabama yeah. or where it was i but I thought the handler did a great job on his deployment. There were announcements. There were a few F-words towards the end that could have done without. But overall, I thought it was a good deployment. We're going to be seeing more of this now. I know California just had some laws passed that starting in January or July 1st, excuse me, we're going to have to start turning over our body-worn camera video and critical incidents within 45 days of the incident. So, and I think other states have similar type laws. There, everybody's trying to get more transparent yeah. with law enforcement. So we may see some more issues now because we're going to have to start turning over our body-worn camera video. I know LAPD, within the last few months, 
started to deploy canine handlers with body-worn videos. LA County Sheriff's, for example, has not yet done that, but that can change where, any day. Where do you on. fall on that? How do you feel about a dog handler having a body worn? Especially when, <laughs> People yeah. ask me my opinion all the <laughs> time. You, and this is <laughs> Let me ask you this. For an agency, if the whole agency is wearing them, uh, then what about for canine officers? If, if, should they have them or not have them? And that's a great question, and it's hard to argue. Well, if everybody in patrol has to wear it and canine is part of patrol, why do they get an exemption? Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I, I understand that argument, but let's back up. And again, this is just sure, Gene talking. Sure. Uh, this is my, my attitude towards it. I agree the body-worn camera video helps reduce the need to sometimes resort to the use of force. It reduces the number of citizen complaints against law enforcement when you're yeah. interacting with members of the public. And that's your general, you know, yeah. your traffic stop or your pedestrian stop. But let's that's traditional law enforcement, but now let's separate that from a tactical world. So now we're responding to someone who we are not going to modify their behavior just because yeah. we have a camera on, yeah. like we would in a traffic stop. We're dealing with someone who's already committed a serious felonious offense, has refused to surrender, and so now by the time canine arrives, okay, we're not modified anybody's yeah. behavior. We're going to have to go in, and we're probably going to have to use a level of force yeah. depending upon the actions of the suspect. My concern is, because I've tried cases with video before, is that I don't think members of the public necessarily can handle what they're about to see on the video. Yeah. We all know that when a dog bites a person, the initial visceral reaction of that suspect is to scream and to yell. And you're thinking this guy is suffering some severe yeah. injury. Yeah. In reality, it just might be a simple puncture yeah. wound. But the idea of looking at a human being being bitten by an animal, I think rubs some people the wrong way and that's always been my concern that i don't think members of the public can actually handle that it may also give up our our intelligence gathering and giving away our our tactics the response to me however because it's, it's happened is well gene you know we've got cops on tv we have all these police related shows everybody knows what canine tactics are and we're not really giving up any uh, intelligence gathering you're just trying to hide the truth well, that's not really true because I'm trying to protect our handler. And many times you don't really see what's happening on the video because of darkness um, or the way the handler is looking and where the camera is facing. Sometimes the camera falls off or changes position so we don't see everything, but you still hear everything. And so I've always advocated, let's have our audio recorders on. It's going to pick up our announcements. It's going to pick up the exchange between the suspect and the officers. Uh, and that will certainly tell what's going on. But everybody now wants video. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I know in the tactical world, in the SWAT world, I don't know if jurors can handle explosive breaching, the deployment of flashbangs, uh, and of course, if a shooting erupts, that's going to be tough as well. So some of my teams aren't deploying with body-worn cameras, but I see the public urging towards going towards that. Um, but I have other teams uh, are using them, and they're s saying that everything seems to be working out well. And they agree you have to train more, and you have to train with these body uh, cameras on so you understand to maintain your language and your professionalism at all time. So they're good and bad for, uh, for both sides of the argument. Seems like just about anywhere you're at anymore, too, there's going to be a video of it somewhere, you know. 
And that's the other argument is, Gene, they're always out there, whether it's surveillance video or someone's got their cell phone on. And and that's true. I can't argue against that. Yeah. It's interesting. I, yeah, I think you, you get to see it from a whole lot of different angles. So I just wanted to kind of get your opinion. And, uh, and I will give my opinion. Sometimes people agree with me, some don't. But and I've had a deal. I've defended a case with video. And sometimes, of course, as we've all discussed, the video doesn't capture everything as our officers saw it. And sometimes they feel it's a disadvantage yeah. to use that video. Yeah, it's interesting. I know, like, uh, I've talked to a lot of, like, even in my department, I know overall the cameras have been a, a great help to most of our street cops and like our traffic officers because the complaints you know when they go to make them in internal affairs they look at the video and it they're you know not not true so it's it's cleared more cops than it's hurt but but it's a different situation like you say it's not not in the middle of a, a dog deployment so exactly and i agree you know the rialto study and some of the other studies document that use of force complaints and uses of force and your general citizen contact go way down but I'd like yeah. to do a study in, in our canine world in a tactical world and see if the use of the force sure. go up because of who we're dealing with. Yeah. I guess the, on that same subject, and I'm putting you on the spot, but I guess just off the top of your head, when you think of some of your, your larger cases, um, would video have made it a positive difference? You know, taking out the fact that maybe the jury wouldn't have liked what they've seen, but when there's a question of fact on some of those bigger cases, I would imagine it, if you could have showed clearly announcements were, were made or or something that was argued, you know, that you had to uh, dispute, it, it, I would think the video on uh, some of those would have been kind of helpful. Sometimes, yes, and which is why, again, why I advocate for an audio record. It'll pick all that. But I know I tried a SWAT case so a year or so ago, and we fired 43 times. There were five uh, shooting officers and 43 rounds were fired. And we struck the suspect, obviously, multiple times. I think a video on that case would have worked against me. I had a, We all had audio. All, all my deputies had audio recorders on, and it all happened within 2.04 seconds. Um, so the jurors, when they heard it, realized how quickly it happened. Five all saw the same threat at the same time. But I think if they had seen a video of us striking this person several times, it may have worked against us. We won that case. But with a video, that might have hurt me. Sure. Yeah, and I could, I could see – Maybe people at the other table slowing video down and trying to put their spin on it. So, absolutely, it's interesting. I don't know. I wonder if it, you know, five years from now, if it'll be kind of a standardized answer or not. If we'll be forced one way or the other, it'll be interesting to see how things turn out. As more cases develop and uh, the body-worn camera video gets used more and more, I think we're going to see new case law developing, which will help all of us better define how we're going to use it. Yeah. Outstanding. Well, those are are really good things to get started with. And as I said, hopefully uh, in the very near future, we'll be able to get you on here and get deeper into quite a few of these subjects. So I I know you're a busy guy and I know you're all over the the country defending us. And I appreciate it. I'm I'm, uh, one of those guys who, uh, you know, I've had to use attorneys to defend me on dog bites. And um, I I sure appreciate having having people like you that are, are out on our side and, and defending defending us. So I appreciate that and I appreciate taking all the time today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to seeing you and everybody else at the uh, upcoming conference. And uh, yes, attorneys are human too. We care. <laughs> some some of you are. <laughs> some, that's true. I will grant you that. <laughs> so if you guys like this and you want to meet Gene, you want to be able to, to see his class. And, and also, uh, we always have a lot of networking opportunities, as I always say. So Gene will be available if they like his class. There'll be plenty of time you'll be able to 
pick his brain before and after class and uh, and get to know him. So uh, you can meet him at HITS at Chicago, August 13th. Uh, go to our website, hitsk9.net for more information. You'll be able to see Gene's uh, biography on there, get all the information about signing up. And hopefully in uh, the very near future, we'll have a few more shows with Gene. So again, Gene, thanks and have a good day. Thank you, Jeff. Be safe. HITS Radio is brought to you by the professionals at HITS Training and Consulting. Don't miss out on the world's largest law enforcement canine training conference. Coming to the McCormick Center in Chicago, Illinois this August, HITS has the most diverse class schedule to fit your training needs. And with over 100 vendors, you'll find everything you need to gear up for your next shift. Register today and save at www.hitscanine.net.